Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, we're back with our next Silver Club podcast, episode 56 today. Rick Sessinghouse is our guest today, but Colin is back, and we're starting a new year here in 2022, Colin. Happy New Year, sir. Happy New Year to you, Steve. Always great to uh, be able to chat with you and pick your brain on the history of golf. You know, you think of this is our, our maiden voyage in 2022 on our Silver Club podcast, and you think of uh, it's it's like a rebirth. It's a new beginning for the year and uh, for golf. But, you know, we, we are kind of partway through the PGA Tour season already, though, which already kind of feels weird. But we've got all the majors ahead of us, which is which is really good. So let's let's start there. Let's really start uh, just do a little broad overview of the men's game real quick and the men's majors. Uh, that we're going to see. This is a great major season this year, isn't it? We've got, obviously, Augusta, uh, and then we'll be at Southern Hills for the PGA Championship. Can't forget the Players' Championship in there back in March, too. And then uh, the Old Course will host the 150th Open Championship, and then we'll be at uh, at Brookline for the U.S. Open as well. I know I went a little out of order there, but so many great venues, so little time. So let's uh, dive in. What are your thoughts? It's exciting. It's been 44 years since a U.S. Open's been played at Brookline. So we're going to see a, a new and improved course with a, a routing that has never, uh, a specific routing that's never been used, including the little drop shot par three. Um, it's been under a full Gilhance restoration. And similarly, we're going to see a new and improved uh, Southern Hills, wider tree clearing. So I think there, there's going to be some a lot of attention on those two courses because they're um, Southern Hills is most has has was used for a PGA not not too long ago, but we're going to see a brand new course and there is nothing better than the Open returning to St Andrews. That's just <laughs> that's that's the greatest and um, you know I I when I you know you have the interview with Collins coach and I I'm just. I think when I think of the majors and you, you think of the grand slam, the career grand slam, almost the, the rarest of all company, the modern, the, to be a, that list has, you know, you've, you've obviously got Hogan, Sarazen, player, Nicholas and tiger. And honestly, tiger's the only one to be added to that list in 40 years. Um, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, so let's I love talk. That. Yeah. Think about yeah. those people that are right on the cusp, though, right? Of, of, I mean, you know, Rory and uh, Jordan Spieth, Rory McElroy and Jordan Spieth have been right there for so many years. And, you know, will Rory get it done? He's, I, I feel like his outlook on the game is really good right now. He's in a really good place uh, mentally, spiritually, the whole thing. Um, so you, you certainly wouldn't bet against him. But to, to have it dialed in that week, Right. That that week, you have to have it. It's uh, it's it's never easy to do, is it? It's incredible. I mean, just figure that Tom, both Tom Watson and Arnold Palmer and Sam Snead were stuck on three. I mean, that is that's an, that's the hardest. That's that is that is the final rung of, of immortality in golf is, <laughs> is getting all four. And and so we're going to and, and what's shocking is Colin through eight majors is halfway there. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's and Dustin Johnson's halfway there. Would it surprise anyone if he, he climbed one closer or two closer, you know, or rounded it out? And Jordan Spieth has the PGA in which to do it. Um, I think that to me, I love I think those are always a great storyline. Um, that is the that is the quickest way to all time to get to, to add your name to the Mount Rushmore of of professional golf greatness is you know, from the modern era, you know, we want to make sure we're clear that it wasn't an option for Jones and others didn't quite get as many British open opportunities in the old, old days. And so, but um, I love that storyline. And I think, you know, the, when you're one with one to go, it, it, it's, it, it has to weigh on you. I mean, you're not just trying to win a tournament. You're trying to, you're trying to get into that sort of first, that first rung. But if anyone seems to be as cool as a cucumber under pressure doing it, 
it's certainly uh, Morikawa. I, I do like to point out, um, I when he when he won that PGA, I quickly looked up if he was in the lineup when Yale played in the uh, inter, Inverness Intercollegiate. <laughs> I knew there was going to be sure a Yale, enough, a Yale uh, conversation here. <laughs> totally. No, no, I just, I just want to point, I, I want to shout out uh, that we, in the fall of his freshman year, uh, Yale and you, Berkeley, you know, the Cal Bears were in the same tournament. And uh, then senior captain Joe Willis did get a quality head-to-head over Colin Morikawa. That, really? And that, that head-to-head is only aging in, in, a, in a, you know, finer every every year as that kid keeps climbing the rank so all right not non-golf question for a second now that you kind of compared those two great schools on either coast of the united states who do you think has a higher gpa the yale bulldogs or the cal berkeley bears well uh yale is definitely guilty of having rampant <laughs> great inflation so no matter <laughs> Uh, we probably do because uh, everybody. You have to try to get anything worse than a, a B plus. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Now it's it's look. I, I went to the University of Florida and I, I stayed eligible every semester. I was I was at school, but uh, yeah, it's hard when you're dealing when you're a student athlete. And I think that that's uh, you know that's what I admire about Colin Morikawa so much is that he stayed in school. And, and, you know, whereas so many players right now, Matthew Wolf, Victor Hovland, so many players leave school early after one, two, three years, they don't get their degree and Morikawa. And I think that's really helped him jump out of the blocks in the professional game so quickly. And, and we're going to hear from Rick Sessinghouse in a moment about a lot of that. But uh, I, I just, I think it's really, uh, it's a really important thing in development of, People who are 19, 20, 21 years old, there's a big gap uh, maturity-wise. And I think we saw it a little bit with Matthew Wolf coming out early. He won. He had a lot of success. And then he had, you know, some sort of, you know, some mental struggles. And, you know, uh, very similar to a Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka in all these other sports. You know, you 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 kind of hit this mountaintop and and there's all this pressure on you. And, uh, but... Uh, you know, it can be too much. It can be too much too soon, it, right? It, it 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 can be, and um, you know, is, is that something that you talk to your players about? Because I know some of them go on to professional golf. I know James Nicholas has had some some pretty good success. Uh, uh, he's working his way up the Corn Ferry Tour ranks, and you know, working hard on his game every time I see him on Instagram. But um, you know, the the is that something that you talk to with the players, and and you know, the the that maturity. Well, absolutely. In the sense of like being doing the things you need to do to be prepared to play your best golf. And you might not hit, you know, you've, you might have all the shots in the bag at, at 19, but like the travel that's, I mean, he, James is definitely learning like the grind and how, you know, it's exhausting and you have to keep your focus up and to stay not that he lacks motivation, but like the, the, the travel and the preparation and the weeks to weeks, they're long days. They're long weeks. You have to be able to carve out time for yourself and, and have an opportunity to, you know, travel with a good book and be able to go to the movies and have non golf have, you have to step away from golf during that. And, and maybe early on it's, 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 I mean, that's what being a student is. You, you're, you know, in some ways you're balancing, you're still, as much as you're spending on your golf, you're still, you're still not a full-time golfer yet. There's exams, there's classes, there's this and that there's, whereas when you're fully pro you're expected to play your best golf every week, no exceptions. Um, That's hard to adjust to that life. I mean, it's not unlike when LeBron, you know, LeBron James talked about going pro at 18 and suddenly having to play 82 NBA games and how you have to just be so smart about how you pace yourself. So um, you know, I, I, it's possible to play some of the best golf for your life at the age of 19. Seve Ballesteros did it. There's others who can, Rory was at the, was essentially was a borderline world number one Ryder Cup or Sergio did it, but, um, they might prove to be the exception. And, and, and in some ways they didn't have a straight arc, you know, straight line sort of progressing upward. They, they sort of took their lumps and, I think there's it's it's underrated the cover you get remaining an amateur. It's mm-hmm. all about your promise and your future, and you get attention for being that really good amateur at the Masters or wherever it is. And then turning pro, it's like 
it doesn't matter that you're young anymore or <laughs> you're suddenly yeah. going up grown men. I mean, this is an experience you, you obviously uh, went through yourself. Yeah, there, I mean, there's no question about it. I, I went all four years at Florida. I, I did not turn pro early, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it's a it's a definitely interesting thing. And, and the PGA Tour University is something that has is out there in the world now where it, it's benefiting those people who want to those those players who want to stay and finish their their eligibility up and you know, whether they get to their degree or not, I guess, is another point. But staying there for their senior year and they earn points and rankings in the PGA Tour University, which allows them to really jump out into the pro ranks and and get some starts early uh, on the Corn Ferry Tour and maybe even on the PGA Tour. So we'll see about that. Uh, before we get to our pod, uh, there's a big event at uh, a club that you're very fond of this year. Uh, it's called the Curtis Cup. Uh, they played it last year, but because it was postponed, they played it in Wales last year. And uh, this year it's going to be at Marion. And uh, just uh, yeah. outside Philadelphia, what a venue Marion is. How Talk to us. Uh, ha- have you seen the changes there? And and if so, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what's gone on at Marion since we may have saw it last on the national stage. Well, as the proud father of three daughters, I love the Curtis Cup. Um, so looking forward to attending. Would love to volunteer. And perhaps we also try to have a, a silver club watch party. Yeah. Um, you know, I love, I'm proud of the fact that club is, it embraces the sort of, uh, embraces the, uh, the women's game, the women's amateur game fully, just um, proud and enthusiastically having such a great event. I remember spending time with you when it was at Quaker Ridge a few years ago. I yes, mean, that, yes. Um, what a, what a wonderful event, just like the Walker Cup, you can sort of walk the fairways and admire great talent on the, before they're professional golfers and, uh, international competition, team competition. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, better than that. And you'll, everyone will, will see, you know, the interesting thing about the renovation to Marion, a lot of it was drainage and, and, um, preparing the greens to be sort of more consistent throughout the whole year. But, um, and the bunkers were kind of brought back to an earlier look. They're not going to have quite the heavier brows they're going to have more of a sand splash and a thinner top line but uh in some ways that was a a proper renovation where it's almost like you it's hard to tell if what was what was done at all um certainly the grass is sort of you know when it regrassed it sort of has that sort of more consistent kind of like um look but uh the course drains and it remains really playable through the summer and um i i couldn't think of a better place to go spend a few days watching watching that competition. Yeah, it'll be pretty cool. June 10th to the 12th. Put that on your calendar, uh, all you golf fans out there. Uh, one of our past podcast guests, actually, uh, Wake Forest product, who's graduated, but uh, still hanging around the amateur game, Amelia Miliacho. We had her back on episode 54, and uh, she's poised to make another Curtis Cup start, uh, very possibly. They're going to have a uh, practice session at Mountain Lake in Florida in a few weeks. Uh, so uh, all you golf fans will stay, keep an eye on that and the Curtis Cup and and uh, a lot of great venues that we're playing. Uh, so many great venues. Our, our Silver Club, we got some awesome venues that we're heading to as well. And uh, you can you can check us out on the web, Silver Club Golf, uh, at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and our website, silverclubgs.com. And uh, so much fun, so much, uh, so much Steve, great I golf for, coming up. Yeah, Steve, I'm, I'm remiss. I, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed that we didn't mention of the other. There's probably more, uh, but the people tragically stuck on three majors. It also includes Lee Trevino, and and think about Phil Mickelson, the one, the one yeah. major that he, the one major that he sort of came the closest to winning the most often. And so, <laughs> I, you know, the. Uh, the, 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 the sort of writer in me and the sort of, you know, I, I see those guys like not as not as being having won three of the four majors. I see them as having not won the fourth. Um, you know, it's like being that tantalizingly close to that. It's an arbitrary difference. I mean, would you how much differently would you consider Lee Trevino as a great player if he had just won one Masters or if Phil had just won one U.S. Open? But it honestly, it it 
it means it means it's just the difference. It's like you're in the Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, Lee Trevino, Phil Mickelson group, you know, right there with Rory and Jordan, or you could get through that. And it's, that seems like the last one's the hardest for some reason, the most, I see it as such a tragic thing to, to be that good. And, and essentially for all intents and purposes, being as good as a grand, a, a career grand slam and yet being just that one shy, um, having that sort of, yeah. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be really interesting and really it, it would be so Phil Mickelson like to win. If you happen to win at Brookline at the country club this year, where a, a venue where you know it's most notably for the youngest U.S. Open, Francis Wiemet, and that story. Maybe would we get the oldest major champion at the same venue in Phil Mickelson? Uh, who knows? That will be uh, a lot to uh, mull over and and uh, chat about over the next several months and uh, as we lead up. But uh, certainly an exciting time of the year. Uh, we've got the Hawaiian events starting on the PGA Tour, a lot of evening golf watching the next few weeks. Uh, so super excited about that. Colin, always great to chat with you. And uh, let's get to this great podcast right now with Colin Morikawa's coach, Rick Sessinghouse. Okay, super excited in the new year, 2022, and our next podcast guest, Rick Sessinghouse, best known for working with the great Colin Morikawa, two-time major champion. Rick Sessinghouse, welcome to the Silver Club Podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. Looking forward to a great 2022. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to, this week will be the Century Tournament of Champions. I'm sure Colin will be out there. Maybe you'll make the trip over uh, from California over to Hawaii. Why not, right? I mean, it's got to go to Hawaii, right? (laughs) Um, But so many great things to dive into and so little time. So let's just jump right into it. Having a master's and a doctorate in applied sports psychology what got you into that mindset in this this part of the game of golf, really? Sure. I think it's my own performance in golf. You know, I, I played very little junior golf, but I did get to walk on at uh, Cal State Northridge, a Division One school here in the Los Angeles area, and found out real quick that physical skills can only get you so far. Uh, I was a hothead on the golf course. Uh, I got frustrated very easily and saw these other players who – mechanically had about the same level of uh, swing that I did, but they, they played much, much better than I did. So it was an eye opener for me that there was mental components to this game. Uh, And uh, that's what I love about the game too. Now is that full circle is that I believe that I'm an expert at it now because of my own, uh, my own failings in it. Yeah, that that's uh, that's certainly a, a great motivator to get out there. You know, talk about some of your competitive game growing up and you know, why, why do you think, you became a hothead in the game or, or maybe that's just how you're wired or maybe, you know, why, why do people get that way? Do you think in all your studies over time? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's an interesting question because I played all these other sports before I ever was introduced to golf. So you play baseball, basketball, tennis, football. Um, I was grew up in a football family. So you, you know, even if you have negative, not even call them negative emotions, but you have anger and frustration you can get on that next play and you can run harder. You can hit somebody harder and you can let some of that out. And then when I started playing high school golf, um, I did not honestly know how to deal with poor golf shots and, you know, and having several minutes in between the next shot, I would only stew more and more in it. And part of it is our expectations with the game, right? It's a, it's back to, it looks like it's a simple game and then you get out there and playing and it's challenging and you hit poor shots and it's, and it does become frustrating. But I think part of that is, is us now learning from each shot, which now is what I coach in, instead of just reacting and, and kind of using the negative self-talk. And then you go down that, uh, unfortunately, that dark hole, <laughs> the abyss of that. So I think golf's unique because it's an individual sport. There's a lot of time in between shots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people's expectations are at times unrealistic and they're already setting themselves up for frustration. And then they honestly don't have a process to deal with after a poor golf shot. And that's some stuff that I definitely talk about in my coaching. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, let's just dive into that real quick. So what sort of, you know, a, a lot of our listeners and the members of our golfing society, they're single digit handicaps, maybe they're plus handicaps, they're, they're good players, or, you know, anybody who listens to our podcast, really, they really appreciate the game and, 
and understand. But how, yeah, how can you dig yourself out when you're out there in the, the middle of the round and you've just three putted four holes in a row and you've made a bunch of bogeys, you've shot your worst front nine ever. How, how do you quickly regain composure? Because that's, that is the hardest thing to do in this game. What's a, what's a trick or two that our listeners can utilize to help their own game? Yeah, and I think you said the key word is composure. It's This is not about being positive after you three-putt. It's about managing our emotions. And so a few things. One is that I, I definitely coach something called a post-shot routine is most people have, they have a result. They look at it in a very judgmental way. That's a bad shot. I can't believe I did that. My swing stinks, you know, and they go down that road of a very judgmental. And I get that part, but how quickly can you just shift it to a learning mindset, which is, okay. I just hit that ball left in the trees. That's not a good shot. Why did it go there instead of just beating myself up? So a lot of it's curious questions of, huh, I wonder why it went left. Now, most people will just say, well, it's a swing. It could be, but I'm biased to the mental game. If you weren't in the correct state to begin with, if there was water on the right that you feared and you just steered it left because you don't want to go right, that's a mental error before it was ever a swing error. And so I want to help people understand that dang it, I hit three tee shots to the left today. And some of that was based on fear of what I don't want to go to the right. See, to me, that's now we can learn from it. Or it could have been, no, Rick, I had such a clear picture what I wanted. I felt great. I was confident over it and it went left. We have a swinger. Great. We get to talk to a swing coach. Hey, my ball went left. I don't know why it's going left. It'd be nice to know mechanically why it does that. So I'm trying to help people understand in the moment it happened, deal with it, learn from it. And then there's other things physiologically that happen when we get all up and tight and all this kind of stuff. We can certainly use breathing. We can use some other skills in between shots to help manage uh, uh, sometimes the anger, the frustration that's going through us. Do you find people aren't honest with themselves, though, when you <laughs> ask that question? Of, OK, was it a mental? Because people don't want to admit that mentally they were weak. I, I think so. But I think what coaches, we can help them, uh, these players understand what mindset really is or what mental game is and i think when they get educated on that they can start to understand like you know i don't think it's a weakness it's just a skill set i need to learn right what's the interferences am i distracted do i have doubt um am i still mad at the last shot i think people once you give them those questions and those frames they go now that i think about it yeah i get distracted very easily on the golf course i have too many swing thoughts i'm my playing partners get in my head and when they can start embracing that, then and then our job as coaches is to say, there's ways to train that now. There's ways to now change that mindset as a skill set too. So I'm very much into state management. The state you're in through execution is going to either hinder performance or optimize performance. A word you said before was routine. You said, hey, I coach people in post-shot routines. I'm sure you have pre-shot routines, pre-round routines all sorts of routines. Uh, and that can be even, you know, the food you eat and the warm up that you have and the stretching and not just getting out to the range and you're, you know, an hour before, but uh, talk about the importance of routines in the sense of, of how the mind connects the dots when you do have the proper routine and a consistent routine. That, that's a great question. And I think back to the word consistency, you just use the word consistent. Most golfers come to us for a lesson. They say, I want to be more consistent. Well, we know that's a loaded um, word because they are already consistent. They're shooting 85 all the time. So they're consistent. What they're really searching for is they've hit enough good golf shots to say, I want that to be more consistent. So even if we use um, the idea of, of playing better golf, you and I both know that there's probably things that led to that that are in their control that are routines. So there's a pre-shot routine, which we're certainly going to think through a shot enough to know the variables, make a decision, visualize it, execute and commit to it. That's one routine. You mentioned a pre-round routine, which I'm very much in favor of is, do I get my body ready? Do I get my mind ready? Do I actually do some uh, pre-shot routines on the range beforehand to get me to focus on a target and visualize. Um, there's stuff even before that going, I mean, I have a work with a lot of professionals and college players at the hotel room. What are they doing? Maybe they do five minutes of mindfulness. Maybe they do a gratitude journal. Maybe they go through their yardage book to get their mind ready for strategy. So consistency could be sleep patterns. I mean, there's a ton of things that are your, your behaviors are under your control, everybody. And so why don't you think about what are these behaviors that are going to help you and support you with peak performance? But the other question has to be asked, 
what are the behaviors that you're doing that could interfere? And that could be everything from, well, to be honest with you, Rick, I got caught on binging Netflix the night before and I only got five hours of sleep or I woke up and I got um, in the car and it was traffic and I got real mad at traffic and I was already, I mean, there's a lot of things that could interfere with performance also, but I want people to understand they have a choice in the matter. Yeah, that's super important. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you worked with a lot of juniors and you do and college players and certainly Colin Morikawa is the guy who you're certainly best known for in the in recent sure. times. I mean, you even uh, there was a something in a magazine recently that even said, you know, you were contemplating maybe shifting gears a bit in your career and going down, the, speaking to the corporate world. Things happen in life that are obviously really good. And, and but Colin Morikawa and his success didn't just happen in the last few years that we've seen in the professional ranks. You've been working with him since he was eight years old. What sort of things did you see in him and his mindset and his game back then that you just kind of nurtured, that you didn't want to tweak a whole lot, and and things maybe that you did change a decent amount to where he is today? Yeah, and the word I would use is is nurture or cultivate. Is um, You have a, a, a young boy when he's eight years old who has that smile on his face that we all now know, uh, but he had that smile coming to lessons as he really enjoyed the game. He had a passion for the game. His parents were so supportive. His dad came to every single lesson, but was a parent of not debating me or not putting unrealistic expectations on his son. It was more of like, hey, he really enjoys this. I'm here to kind of support him. I go, oh my, that is awesome, right? And then as he kept playing, what I found was, Yes, he had talent, great hand-eye coordination, and you and I have both worked with many, many talented juniors, and nowadays there's a lot of physical talent out there. There's no question about that. I think what separated Colin in an early age was, one, he was extremely coachable. Um, he took responsibility for his performance, and that might sound weird, but you have a 9, 10, 11-year-old who never makes excuses, who wants to get better, who asks great questions and curious, you go, huh, this is a little different at this, at, at this age, right? And then as you progress to 14, 15, 16, you start maturing physically, you're starting to play national events. He always took on challenges. He was highly competitive. And I think that kept him going. And the one thing that I want you know, to really emphasize is his motivation came from a love of the game, not from achievements. And I want to get a college scholarship and I need to, you know, yeah, have everybody tell me how good I am. He honestly, even to this day, he just wants to get better the next day and he can't wait to try a new shot or he can't wait to push himself a little harder. He loves the game and he's extremely passionate about it. And I've seen a lot of juniors who get burned out at a very early age. And I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons at that point. Um, and unfortunately, then they get to college and they don't have a love of the game. And guess what? The competition is even better. And then they don't, worked the same amount. So he had great work ethic, never had to tell him how to practice. Um, and he's just the coachability and the curiosity and just, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a joy to work with then as he is now. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You, you talk about the, you know, the, the love of the game, the internal, the internal motivation as opposed to the external motivation to to become better that's what percentage of juniors do you see that have that or how much do parents i mean parents i i saw it growing up myself playing amateur golf and junior golf there would be parents that would put so much pressure on kids it would make them throw up on the first tee i mean i you know god forbid i saw that i saw that but the parenting role in all of this and kind of getting out of the way i mean how important was were colin's parents in all of that Right. And I think back to the kind of the first questions is, I believe juniors start with a very intrinsic reason when they first play the game, right? They're introduced by parents, a friend, maybe it's a summer camp and they go, wow, this is a cool sport. I get to smack this ball around. I get to go find it. I get to play. And they look at it as something to play. And then as they start to compete, which I'm fine with an eight or nine year old competing, don't, don't get me wrong, but they, I want them to enjoy the camaraderie of meeting new junior golfers and, and learning the rules and, and, and etiquette and being to play different golf courses. But there becomes a fine line where either at an early age, you know, uh, parents and coaches put them on Instagram and Facebook with the, the, the metal around their neck. And that feels good in the moment. 
Um, but then what they're associating with is I only get attention when I play well and I better keep playing well. So people tell me I'm good at this. And that starts one cycle of extrinsic. And then the other thing, when they start realizing that they could play golf in college and their scholarships, and then the parents, of course, light up. Um, now it's being done for extrinsic reasons. So I honestly believe for, I would say, 95% of juniors I work with, they start off in very intrinsic reasons. They actually love it. They like the challenge. They like being out with their buddies. They like screwing around. And then it becomes uh, like a job when they're 16 already. I'm like, holy smokes, uh, that gets that. So I think that that's a key element. And then you brought up the parents, right? And Colin's parents were supportive. They said, hey, he loves this game. We will do things to help support that, right? It was a very simple thing. But then I get other parents to say, hey, this little Johnny, little Jill, they got talent. I think they can be D1. I think I go, oh, okay, does little Johnny, little Jill want to do this or not? And then you get like, I don't know, coach, I guess, you know, it's like, oh, smokes. So um, I think the parents start to, to lead the ship a little bit too much. And they don't realize that 15, 16, 17 year old who is supposed to now be the best golfer in their region they're supposed to get 4.0 or higher in their gpa in school there and everything's achievement oriented and the pressures and pressures and pressures build that um it affects all of their life and that's a very it's a soft spot in my heart when i see this this achievement oriented that they got to do great at everything it's like wow i don't know many adults who do are great at everything you know yeah it's a lot of ways a lot of these parents put the cart before the horse in a way right uh I think it's a perfect segue, though, to it was an article that I read in Golf Digest recently that Dan Rappaport wrote. It talks about pro golf approaching its own mental health reckoning and talked about Matthew Wolf and and his mind struggles over the over the course of the last year or so, despite having so much success. We've seen it in other sports as well. Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka in gymnastics and tennis, and they've had a lot of issues. And maybe it's the individual sport sort of thing, but explain your feelings about this topic, about if there is a a mental health crisis uh, out there in these individual sports, and while others seemingly bypass it and have no worries. Yeah, and, and I just want to make it clear, I'm not a clinical psychologist. My my role is in performance uh, psychology, sure. yet mental health um, is at the forefront, as it should be. Uh, there's more conversations about it, and I think it's accepted more, which now allows more people to talk and about being uh, vulnerable and being open about it. So that's the great part. And so to answer the question, yes, um, our mental health every single day is being um, stretched Uh, Think about if you're not even um, take golf to the side, right? What we've gone through with COVID has stressed people, has changed environments, has challenged people beyond where they have been before. And now golf, you have somebody who is in the limelight and their performance is scrutinized all the time, whether it's media or social media, which that's a whole other discussion. I'm not a big fan of social media um, because people can now be critical of these high performers who are sacrificing are working their butt off. And these people on social media can be judgmental and they're not doing anything in their life. Right. <laughs> and so um, that's, again, don't get me started, but the, the idea here is that how does somebody now, do they have strategies and coping mechanisms when things go poorly or when things go great and all the attention, and then people think they have to be somebody else. They're not and the expectations that's a lot to take, take in, you know, I'm fortunately I'm fairly adjusted. Now I'm 50 years old. I don't (laughs) think I would have been able to deal with it at 20 and 21. Are you kidding me? All right. I'm going to cut into this great podcast with Rick just to say a big thank you to all the sponsors of the silver club, the Turtleson company, hop on turtleson.com and learn about everything that Turtleson has going for them. Great people, great product, great customer service in Turtleson torch eyewear, Wonderful protection and stylish eyewear for all occasions. Putt View Books. If you want to understand the runouts and the carries on the bunkers and green contours, check out puttviewbooks.com slash SCGS for $20 off your first purchase. And last but not least, Two Under. Two Under has the softest underwear out there. It's compression without being compression, if you know what I mean. 
Hop on 2under.com and type in Silver Club 20 at checkout for 20% off of your next order. Thanks to all our great companies for all their support as we kick off this great year. All right, back to the podcast with Rick. Yeah, that's uh, it's certainly a big, big challenge for all of these. I mean, w- with Collins specifically, though, and him being different than a Matthew Wolf or a Victor Hovland, as far as uh, finishing his collegiate career and, and graduating from, yes. from Cal Berkeley, how much do you think that has played into his maturity coming right out? I think it. I think all those life experiences certainly build on it. Um, as I've mentioned, Colin at a very early age was mature. He was accountable. He. I think the other part which I enjoyed with with him and his parents is there was never um, exaggerating something like, okay, if you played poorly in a tournament, oh my gosh, right? And they exaggerate everything. It's like, oh, that's a tournament. We move on. And so the the bumps in the road, the achievements were just kind of put in perspective. Uh, at a much healthier way. And then I think, you know, his goal of, of graduating in four years from the business school at, at Berkeley um, showed his discipline, showed his time management skills. And I think that also helped him from a professional level to know that when you're a successful PJ Tour player, which he is, you have uh, time commitments with sponsors, you have media commitments. And I think being able to balance high level academics and that I think helped him uh, understand the time management stuff. And again, he's very grounded. Um, he's got a great perspective on, on life and, and, and of his success. Yeah. Newly engaged too. That, that, <laughs> yes. uh, that, that always is nice to have a, a good partner by your side. Definitely. Uh, that's been, uh, been documented out there with his uh, fiance cat. That's, that's very exciting for him and his uh, family and for you, I'm sure. Yes. Um, we met each other uh, this year for the first time at the PGA championship where I was doing a PGA coaching live channel. And that week, particularly, he was a defending champion. Uh, right. It was because of the 2020 PGA championship that he won at the TPC of Harding Park. Was there any extra pressures this year? Being Obviously, he went to, to win on uh, to win the Open Championship at, uh, at Royal St. George's. But, you know, being a defending champion of a PGA championship, I mean, was there any thing different that went through his mind, do you think, or that you kind of worked on that week in particular that maybe you hadn't worked on in the past? I mean, I think my short answer is no, we didn't really do anything differently. Um, You'd kind of have to ask him where his mindset was, but I don't think it was much different. You know, it's been very unique about Colin, about what he's won so far. He won the Barracuda, which he never did defend. Um, He won a workday charity event, which was a one-off because of COVID, never had to defend. The PGA now is the only one he's defended, but it's at a completely different golf course. He, he won the WGC event this year, concession, which was supposed to be in Mexico. He's not going to defend at the same spot. So it's weird that when he's won, and this happened in college, by the way, too, but he's won events that he never had to defend. So it was a little different. Hey, it's a PGA championship, but I'm coming back to defend. But it's a completely new environment. It's a different golf course completely. True. So I don't think the same expectations of, well, I shot 13 under at, at TPC Harding Park. I need to do that this it's a completely different challenge. So I think that was part of it, which helps. Um, but on the positive is him winning a major championship opens up the possibilities of more, right? It, some people say the first one's the hardest one, right? And you do that. It's like, now you have a really this possibility, like I can win every week, I can win this major. And I think that's what has also helped him in his mindset. So I don't think we did anything different. Um, I think there's a few little media stuff to take care of and a little bit of time stuff, but uh, I felt he was, was pretty ready uh, starting on Monday. So, so all the things that you work on with, with a a player during the week, I mean, what sort of things might you work on with a Colin or, or whoever you work with in, in their competitive games, what sort of things, what are a couple things that maybe the average player, you know, the five or 10 handicap doesn't do that the, the top professional or the top amateur does do? Yeah, I think that's, it's a great question. In, in, I'm, in preparation, I guess. Exactly. That's so, the yeah. key word, right? Is what can I do that's in my control to prepare? And that could be anything from, you know, uh, you know, Colin's got these wonderful trainers um, at a, a group called UGP, Urban Golf Performance. And, and the idea is that we want his body to show up every single day the same way, right? So you do the same 
stretches, you do the same activation of the muscles, you do that because you want your body to feel the same. That five handicap, are you doing the basics every day to get your body the same? Maybe, maybe not. We'll talk about that. Yeah. I think even think from a strategy standpoint, right? So uh, Colin has one of the best caddies out there, JJ Jakovac, and it's, you know, do you have a game plan? You know, this golf course is playing this way. How the weather is going to be? How does my game match this? How do I, what am I going to pick my targets off the tee? And, and I don't think people think ahead enough uh, to create a game plan moving forward. And really the last part, which is early on in a week, let's say with Colin, is we're certainly looking at ball flights. We're looking at how the swing is producing it. Great. If the ball flight's fine, there's no need to talk technique. Um, and if there is a pattern, sometimes you have to play the pattern. And sometimes if you do know your swing well enough and you're getting that off pattern, let's say I'm overcutting it, ah, dang it, club face is open, that, ah, you know, um, I'll do this. That's fine. But I think people, they panic early. They want to fix golf swings. They have too many swing thoughts. Now they get into fear mode and now they get out there. They don't have a game plan. And I think it works against them. <laughs> yeah, they don't have a, yeah, they don't have a shot shape that they know that they can, they can hit, right? Uh, very interesting. I mean, we talked a lot about mindset. Talk a little bit about technique. I mean, for Colin, he's been compared to Tiger in so many of the, the strokes gained, the proximity to the hole stats. Why is he such a great iron player in your mind? Yeah, and I think it has to do with a few different skills. One is hand-eye coordination, right? You need to control the club face through impact. And we've seen great players who have great short games, for instance, because they can just, they're magical with how they can change the club face with hand positions and stuff like that. And yet in a full swing, you've got to control that club face at a high level of speed too. And Colin from an early age had great club face control. Um, as we built his swing, he was somebody who hit a draw, believe it or not, when he was a younger uh, kid. And then <laughs> as he got stronger physically, um, he preferred the fade and we made a couple adjustments, but his club face control was always very, very good. Um, then we look at that as, okay, that's a technical thing, right? He has club face that does very little deviation through impact. Thus, there's going to be less, um, you know, dispersion right or left. Okay. Everybody can work on club face control. I do a lot of half swing drills, a lot of punch shot drills for people to understand um, how the hands affect club face, right? And then, of course, how your turn affects it. There's a lot of things, and that's why working with great coaches is important to understand your cause and effect. So he had that. The other thing which I think does make him different um, than a typical really, really good player is he actually, him and I came from it from a creative standpoint, playing more than just hitting balls on a range, trying to get perfect swing positions and track man numbers and stuff like that. So even though he plays for the most part a fade 95% of the time, he's changing a little bit of how much he wants it to fade. He's changing trajectories. He's changing because that gets his engagement, which is part mindset, into the shot. He's very focused because he loves creating golf shots. So you have the good technical you have the creative, and then you finally lead into that final mindset, which is his ability to focus in the present moment, his ability to um, to commit to a golf shot is a skill in and of itself. And again, I don't know Tiger. I have immense uh, you know, respect for what he's done. Uh, I, and I think if you see some of what Tiger's done, and especially lately, he's done some stuff for TaylorMade, you see the creativity in Tiger. You see him um, hitting a lot of different golf shots. And I think that's something that um, listeners, especially those juniors, is have fun. Learn to play the game. Create some shots. It's not all about zeroing out your TrackMan numbers, okay? <laughs> that's a great point. That's a great point. All right. As we wind down here, just a couple more questions, and you've been awesome with your time. Really appreciate that. If our listeners had one hour to practice every week, only one, maybe they go play another day, but if they had one hour to just practice on their game, how much of that would you say they should work on their physical game? And how much of that should they work on their mental game, their mindset, their routines, all of that? Yeah, no, very, very good question. And I'm going to be very general with this, but because not knowing the player, but mm -hmm. I think from a physical standpoint, let's say we work on uh, the actual mechanics of a golf swing, 20 minutes, we work on a putting stroke for 10 minutes and chipping for 15 or 20 minutes. We have 45 minutes or so that is a, we're, we're acquiring a skill, right? Um, but within that, though, I would want to be even more general. So 
I'm going to work on my golf swing by having good tempo, by having good balance, um, by checking fundamentals. Um, I think those things are overlooked for positions now. It's like, oh, I want to get this position because I saw this on uh, Instagram and I want to work on, you know, and that's fine. But if I'm only an hour that all I'm going to practice, I would much rather make sure that my balance was good. My tempo was good. Um, and then you do look at shot shape. Hey, I'm doing that. And the ball is fading 15 yards. Huh, I can play that. Right. So now if I know it's going to go 15 yards, there's there's confidence with that. And same thing with short game and stuff. But from a mindset perspective, we can have mindset on every single golf shot. Have an intention on every single swing you make. I want to do this on this. Great. Now we're focusing. Now we're in the present moment. We're not jumping around all over the place. So I believe there's always a blending of physical and mental. Um, but if somebody's only getting an hour a week or something like that, I would keep it quite general and um, understand what your patterns are. And then from a mindset focuses your number one skill. Are you actually present in this shot? And that's something we can do for a full hour. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um as a parent or for me as a PGA professional, uh, two kids and, you know, what, what's something or what are some of the best things that we can say to our kids and not not be that parent who's, you know, putting so much pressure on the on the, the child? I mean, what sort of things are the are the best things that we can say to our kids? Yeah, no, great question is that, you know, and whether you're a parent or coach or, you know, is I always kind of pose three questions to every one of my students is after a round of golf, you know, what did you do well? I want them to always remember what they did well. Uh, what did you learn? And what do you want to work on? Now, instead of the parent telling the, 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 the junior, I saw you three put it on 18. How dare could you do that? I can't believe you did that. Da, da, da. Oh my gosh, your putting strokes. It's like, whoa, time out. He, the junior already knows they three putted. You don't need to reinforce it. But if you said, what did you do well today? And they said, oh, mom, dad, I made this birdie on eight. You know, it was really a cool putt that I made. And then you say, hey, what did you learn? Ah, you know what? I three putted the last hole and I, you know, my, my speed's a little off. And then, hey, what do you need to work on? Ah, you know what? Overall, I, I need to work on my speed control. I'm going to go do these drills. That helps the junior develop some ownership of what's happening. And they know pretty much what they're doing. So that's part of it. And then a question that is, rarely asked is, did you enjoy your time out on the golf course? There's a novel idea. Um, and so I think, you know, is posing that and sometimes with some of my more combustive parents, uh, I say there has to be a one hour cool down period. So once the, the junior has hit their last putt and signed their scorecard, you are not allowed to talk about that round of golf for at least a full hour. Um, and that way, everybody can cool down a little bit and I don't want it to ruin a uh, drive home or a dinner or anything like that. And then afterwards, then pose those questions. Hey, did you enjoy yourself today? Yeah, it was pretty good. I got a little mad. Okay, fine. And then what did you do? Well, talk about that. What did you learn? What do you need to work on? And again, have the junior be able to communicate that and not just as parents tell them, what you saw. And I can't believe you did that and stuff like that. It's, it's, it, these juniors, I don't want them to be in fear-based mode because they're afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful point there. All right. Last question. Um, how do we just catch ourselves and before the, the round uh, just, just goes awry and how can we right the ship out there you know, what's what's a mental trick that we can do to just trick our mind to, to get us out of where uh, where we might be at in the round in a negative way? Sure. No, I think that there, there's two ways. So once I, I alluded a little bit earlier about a post shot routine is what can I learn from a shot without being critical? I'm trying to minimize the intensity of the emotion. So it was easy for me to be frustrated, slam club down, you suck, Rick. And that became that. And now I look at it and go, that's not shot. It's not very good, Rick. Come on. What did I learn? I'm not saying I'm happy, but I've gone from frustrated to disappointed. So one, it's, it's managing the intensity of it. The next one is how long does that emotion stay with you? So in between shots, you know, when we're beating ourselves up, we are literally in our head and our self-talk is out of control. I want somebody to go opposite, which is external look at a mountain, look at a tree in the distance, take some breaths to give your mind a timeout, right? In other sports, a coach, when things are going bad, 
Time out. Get over here, team. Sit your butt down. Take a drink of water. Take a breath. We got to have a new strategy, right? And so I would say, let's call some timeouts on ourselves on the golf course a little bit. And then the final part would be, we need to create new goals, okay? So the front nine goes awful, okay? You're not going to shoot your low score ever. I get it. But now you can go, what do I want to accomplish on the back nine? What do I want to accomplish in these next three holes, right? And it could be score related. I'm okay with, hey, Rick, you know, I have a score goal, but at least it's focusing on the future. You're not still in the past. And then ultimately, and this is something I talk a lot with competitive players is what's your behavior goal? And people go, what the heck are you talking about, Rick? It's like, is how do you want to be? And maybe it's composed. Maybe it's mentally tough. Maybe it's, and now this is a time you get to show that. Um, and it's not all about score. And that does take some discipline. So those are the, the suggestions I would have. Love that. Love that. I, I love the timeout one because yes, you're, you're always in the game. You always have the ball in golf. And so, you know, kind of taking that mental timeout when you can, uh, uh, most, most people after nine, maybe they go to the bar and have a mental timeout, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, as competitive golfers, you can't do that or we shouldn't do that. So you're not taking any timeouts, uh, into this new year. Uh, you're going to be going over, you'll be in, uh, in Hawaii with yes. Colin at the century tournament champions and beyond. And with all of your students, if, if any of our listeners wanted to contact you, where can they do that? And do you, do you have any time? Because you're, you're, I know you're so busy doing lots of great things and uh, commercials and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I've, I've been super fortunate with all the opportunities that have come my way. And and I, I love coaching and I still coach full time. Um, obviously, traveling a lot with Colin. I have a new project that's coming out uh, actually right now, the start of 2022 called Flow Code Golf Academy. And it's flowcode.golf uh, for out there. And and, you know, on social media, I don't do a ton, but um, it's uh, my full name, Rick Sessinghouse. And then my website's ricksessinghouse.com. And uh, de definitely always open if people have questions and stuff like that and, and sharing information and, and see how I can help people. Well, awesome, Rick. It was really a pleasure hearing from you and getting inside the game with you and really kicking off our uh, 2022 season here on the Silver Club podcast. So uh, we'll see you in person down the road sometime That's soon. Right. And uh, until then, uh, continued success. Thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Big thanks again to Rick Sessinghouse for joining us on this very first podcast of 2022. Don't forget to download and subscribe all of our previous 55 episodes and keep following us at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We've got a lot of great venues we're going to this year, a lot of great golf courses you're not going to want to miss. We've got a lot more guests in the pipeline for 2022, and we look forward to connecting you with the fabric of this great game that we all love. Until next time, everybody, play well, stay safe, and we look forward to bringing you another Silver Club podcast real soon.